Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hi there, POTS patients and fellow people who care about POTS patients. My name's Mike Brook, and today we have another episode about POTS nutrition, where I'm interviewing your regular host, Jill Brook. You may recall that Jill is a longtime nutritionist in California. Of course, she is a POTS patient as well. She's a researcher, a nutrition consultant to Dysautonomia Clinic, and a founding board member of Standing Up to POTS. She holds degrees from Princeton and UCLA. She also, coincidentally, is my wife, and I'm highly, highly familiar with her eating habits which I can vouch are heavily influenced by POTS and related conditions. And one more footnote before we start. I am recording this from her podcast studio, which is a mattress on the floor. And so if I sound like I'm panting or struggling to get comfortable or something like that, it's because I'm in her world right now. She records these things on her stomach on the floor. She does most things on her stomach on the floor. And do we need to explain why, Jill? They know why better than anyone. They are my people. Okay. At any rate, thank you for being the guest today, Jill. My pleasure. Thank you for being our host. Last time we did a nutrition episode, we did a deep dive on salt, fluids, and blood volume in pots. So what do you have for us today? Well, for the sake of completeness, I thought we'd better cover the rest of the super basics of pots nutrition eating small frequent meals and reducing carbohydrates, basically why those might help. And then that's going to lead to a couple of studies on blood sugar and insulin in POTS patients. All right. Last time you explained that POTS patients can have a lot of different complex issues going on, which can affect their diet or digestion. So for example, there's mast cell activation syndrome, MCAS, there's gastroparesis, gut motility problems, hypermobility, collagen disorders, food sensitivities, nausea, struggles with preparing food, and all of this other stuff. And so there is no one-size-fits-all advice And it's important that listeners work with their own doctors to determine what's right for them. So this is not meant as medical or dietary advice. Do you agree? Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I also just want to recognize all the POTS patients out there who have such serious digestive issues that they literally cannot eat like a normal person. Because I know from a couple years when my digestion was completely dysfunctional, when I couldn't eat any solid food at all, it made me feel really left out and envious when I would hear other people discussing food and meal options. I know there's going to be some POTS patients out there who either cannot enjoy eating or they may actually require tube feeding or whatnot. And I just want them to know that we see them, our hearts go out to them, and I'm sorry about the parts of this episode that won't really apply to them and the parts of this episode that imply that some of us have choices about what and how we eat. I certainly remember that. I mean, that was very depressing to kind of have that joy taken away from you. And I guess what you're saying is this is actually fairly common among POTS patients? You know, according to a 2019 study from the Mayo Clinic by Andrew Sang and colleagues, what they did was they looked at POTS patients who had visited the Mayo Clinic in Arizona between 2010 and 2017, 
And of the 332 patients in the study, 32 or about 10% required some form of non-oral nutrition or hydration support at some point during the time that they were followed. So their number said about 10% at some point. So non-oral nutrition or hydration support. Is that the same as how the machines kept the humans alive in the matrix? (laughs) I don't know. But non-oral hydration or nutrition support can take a few forms. One is IV fluids, which I think all POTS patients are familiar with. That's when you get saline or a similar fluid intravenously to boost blood volume. And 21 POTS patients in the Mayo Clinic study, or about 7%, needed that. Another form is enteral nutrition, which is when you get a feeding tube through the nose and down into the stomach. And 6% of the Mayo Clinic POTS patients required that at some point. Then a third form is parenteral nutrition, which is when you get your nutrition put right into the bloodstream. So it even just bypasses the entire digestive tract. And 3% of the POTS patients required that in the Mayo Clinic study. But you know, it's probably important to emphasize that the Mayo Clinic is likely getting the most severe of the severe POTS patients. So it might not be totally representative. Okay. So a minority of POTS patients, but there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast. So chances are there's some people out there listening to this that are in this situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a great reminder that for those of us who find eating easy and pleasurable, that we shouldn't take it for granted. But even for the majority of POTS patients who can eat somewhat normally, they are still encouraged to avoid large meals and instead to eat more frequent, smaller meals or snacks. So why is that? Well, there's several reasons. First of all, many POTS patients are just too nauseous to eat very much at once. Many POTS patients have something called early satiety, which just means they get full very fast, and it could be associated with gastroparesis or bloating upon eating, which is a common complaint in POTS patients. So for many, it's just uncomfortable to eat more than a few bites at a time. Also, it just takes a lot of energy to digest a full-size meal, so it could exacerbate fatigue. And then a big one is that eating a regular meal causes quite a bit of extra blood to be directed to the digestive organs. How much are we talking about here? Well, for starters, in healthy people at rest, it's estimated that about 30% of their blood volume is typically circulating in the area around the abdomen and digestive tract. And up to 25% of resting cardiac output goes to circulate that blood. I couldn't find the equivalent information for POTS patients specifically, but that's basically what it says for the average population. So that sounds like a lot. I imagine that if you have POTS and blood volume is an issue to begin with, that's extra problematic. Yeah. And, you know, according to a 2018 article from Mayer and colleagues at Vanderbilt University called Gastrointestinal Symptoms in Postural Tachycardia Syndrome, a Systematic Review, They report that eating makes the gut release vasoactive hormones that bring more blood to the gut, and they report that it's a lot more blood. In fact, they report a standard meal results in about a 300% increase in mesenteric blood volume. But they say that POTS patients may have an even greater increase in blood flow to that area, since we know that POTS blood pooling is largely already in the abdominal area. So, you know, the upshot is that digesting full meals takes a lot of blood flow, leaving less to circulate to other parts of the body, like the brain. 
Okay, so I have heard that POTS patients might feel more dizzy, faint, have more brain fog or tachycardia and so on after a full-size meal, which a lot of blood seems to be getting redirected to their digestive system. Is that what's going on? Yeah, and I've heard from a lot of POTS patients that it doesn't even require a full-size meal to bring on all those symptoms. Some report feeling very potsy after just a couple bites. Now, I think that might be kind of extreme. For many, if they eat smaller meals, you know, not too much at any given time, then that can really appear to help. I think it would be too much to ask that there's some sort of a study on this. Is this just sort of anecdotal at this point? As far as I'm aware, yes. I do not know of any studies that have actually compared three square meals to grazing throughout the day. Okay. I've already said that I'm laying on my stomach and I'm starting to like this actually, I'll be totally honest with you. But when you eat, (laughs) you eat on your stomach or you eat on your side or you eat with your feet up on the table and you eat in all kinds of crazy positions. Can you tell us why you do that? I just know that I'm more comfortable eating that way. I have pretty extreme orthostatic intolerance, so I don't like sitting upright for very long for any reason. But especially if I'm eating, I like those positions. And I do wonder if maybe laying on the stomach basically prevents blood pooling there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What else? Are there other reasons that we would want to have smaller meals instead of three square meals? Yeah, there's two more reasons that I can think of. One is that POTS is associated with a heightened sympathetic state. That's the fight or flight response, which is in contrast to the parasympathetic state or that rest and digest state. And when the body is in fight or flight mode, it deprioritizes digestion. So the idea, I guess, is if you're fighting or fleeing, you need what all of your energy and everything to concentrate on getting away from the wildebeest or whatever, and your body would deprioritize digestion would save that for when that's all over. Yeah, I think the thinking is that you would direct the energy and the blood flow to the muscles so you can fight or flee and digesting that meal isn't going to help you if you're being chased by a tiger. Okay, so what's the last reason? The last reason is that it can help our blood sugar stay more stable, not too high and not too low. Blood sugar swings could exacerbate POTS problems, and they are known to affect energy, mood, sleepiness, concentration, memory, brain fog, and a lot of things that we don't need on top of POTS symptoms. I mean, I know that I feel lousy when my blood sugar is on a roller coaster and I don't have POTS exacerbating all that. I can see how POTS plus a blood sugar spike or crash would be sort of a terrible combination. Can you tell us what the common symptoms are of, say, low blood sugar? Sure. People react differently, but low blood sugar can commonly lead to dizziness, weakness, shakiness, fatigue, trouble concentrating, headaches, sugar cravings, presyncope. So that sounds almost like a perfect overlap with POTS symptoms. What about high blood sugar? Yeah, high blood sugar often has no immediate symptoms, especially if it doesn't lead to a blood sugar crash afterwards, but sometimes it'll lead people to get sleepy or thirsty. Okay, so there's a lot of overlap between some of these sort of blood sugar symptoms and POTS symptoms, and so I can see how it maybe make POTS worse. But if you were to do this and eat sort of these small frequent meals, are there any downsides? I suppose dentists would say that constant grazing is tougher on your tooth enamel. 
So I personally try to be good about flossing and brushing at night to make up for it. And then I think another one is just that a habit of constant grazing can make it easy to forget about having balanced meals because you might just keep grabbing handfuls of crackers or whatever through the day. So it's just something to be aware of. Okay, so that notorious combination of standing up and heat that goes with food prep, we've already talked about how difficult that is. So if a patient is going to just inevitably be grabbing snacks instead of sitting there spending a lot of time cooking meals, can we talk about easy and quick but still really healthy foods that somebody could choose? Sure. And, you know, like we said at the beginning, everybody's so different in terms of what they can tolerate. But some ideas that might work for some people would be things like grabbing a handful of almonds or walnuts or really any tolerated nut or seed, maybe apples or plums or any tolerated fresh fruit, yogurt, cheese or hard boiled eggs would be kind of easy things to grab. Boiled soybeans are a good source of protein if you don't want to have to stand up or cook. Pickles are a perennial favorite. Carrots with hummus, maybe jicama slices with guacamole, baby tomatoes. Almond milk is a good one. Miso soup can give you a lot of salt. You know, you can always throw in some frozen pre-chopped veggies into that miso soup if you can stand for an extra moment of preparation. The common advice we always hear is to batch cook at times when your symptoms are better to have things ready for the next few days. Oh, okay. That sounds like a pretty extensive list. Are there other reasons you might not want to do this? You know, researchers who focus on gut health often recommend waiting four to five hours between meals or snacks so that the intestinal cleaning wave called the migrating motor complex can sweep through the digestive tract and do its daily housekeeping. And that cleaning wave is thought to only happen when we've gone four or five hours without eating. We come across this often in the recommendations around SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which we discussed in great depth in a previous episode with Dr. Leonard Weinstock. But that intestinal cleaning wave is thought to help prevent SIBO from coming back it's thought to improve the gut microbiome. And, you know, we've discussed in other episodes that POTS patients appear to be at higher risk for SIBO. So this can get a little tricky if someone finds that their SIBO doctor says to eat three square meals with no snacking in between to encourage that migrating motor complex. But then their POTS doctor tells them to graze throughout the day. So this sounds like another chapter in the ongoing story of POTS paradoxes, where one sort of side of it needs you to do one thing and one side sort of needs you to do the opposite. And I know you've struggled with that yourself. So how did you solve it? Yeah, it is a POTS paradox, one of many. Yeah, I've had SIBO and I don't want it again. I try to split the difference. I graze from about 7 in the morning till 1 p.m. And then I usually don't eat again until about 6 or 7. So I give my digestive tract time for that cleaning wave in the afternoon and then again overnight while I'm sleeping. And then I take advantage of the grazing in the morning. Aha. Uh-huh. This is what I love about this podcast. I learned so much about you, Jill. <laughs> I think we've covered small frequent meals. Is it okay if we move on to carbohydrates now? Yes. Okay, so let's move on to carbohydrates. Now, we often see recommendations for POTS patients to try limiting high carbohydrate foods. Why? 
Well, this is not based on any actual interventional trials or anything like that on POTS patients per se, but many experts recommended based on their clinical experience, hearing from patients, and based on theory that it should help symptoms and possibly future health too. Okay, so let's take a little step back and make sure we're on the same page about what foods we would consider high carbohydrate foods. So what are the foods that POTS patients might try cutting back on? Anything with lots of refined sugar would be a top candidate. So the soda, candy, cookies, pastries, things like that. Next would be processed carbohydrates made from white flour, like white bread, maybe white pancakes, waffles, or crackers. There's also some very nutritious carbohydrates, like whole intact grains, like brown rice, quinoa, steel-cut oats, that kind of thing. Also, yams, sweet potatoes, beans, lentils, peas, those would be the last of the carbs to give up, and only if you really need to because they're very nutritious and our friendly gut microbes really like them. Okay, so is there a quantitative sort of dimension here? Like how low carb do we really want to go? Is there a gram count that we're shooting for? No, there is no exact recommendation other than experimenting with reducing your carbs and preferably starting with the ones that are not very healthy to begin with. Okay, so is it safe to issue our usual caveat that like most recommendations in POTS, we think that you should probably consult your doctor, do it gradually, and then just do what you can tolerate. Is that true? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why would this help? Why would eating lower carb help a POTS patient feel better? Well, we already discussed blood sugar stability and how low blood sugar and high blood sugar can make you feel worse. Sugar or processed carbohydrates are the foods most likely to give you a blood sugar spike, which for some people then results in a crash afterwards. So that's a big reason. And then newer research is also showing that too much sugar is related to mood and anxiety issues. So that's no fun. I can relate to that. Are there other reasons? Theoretically, there are a few additional reasons. That 2018 paper by Mayer and colleagues that we discussed about GI symptoms in POTS did mention that higher carb meals appear to draw more blood toward the GI tract than lower carb meals. So we already covered why that could help us feel better. Yet another reason is something we discussed in our episode with Dr. Noah Greenspan of the Pulmonary Wellness Foundation. He explained how carbohydrates, when they are digested, produce more carbon dioxide per gram compared to protein or fats. So that means the lungs have to work a little harder to expel all of that. And in sensitive people, that can increase feelings of shortness of breath. Wow, I've never heard that before. That's an interesting point of view, but I guess I could see how that could be relevant. What else? Other reasons? Yes. There's a finding from 2018 in a study by Mayer and colleagues at Vanderbilt again, reported in the Journal of Clinical Autonomic Research that found, quote, despite normal body mass index, POTS patients have impaired glucose tolerance, which dramatically increases their risk to develop type 2 diabetes mellitus, unquote. Uh-huh. Yes, I do remember that article for two reasons. So one is that it really bummed you out. <laughs> yeah. The other reason, and hey, Mayor and colleagues at Vanderbilt, if you're listening to this, 
we made a cartoon about your study, actually. We made a doodle-through cartoon about your study. And what it was was a picture of a Potsy looking at a huge piece of cake. And it said, in fancy lettering underneath, it said, Pots, taking life's joys, rolling them up in a carpet, and throwing them off a bridge since 1993. <laughs> yeah, that's how it felt at the time. I was probably being overly dramatic because almost everybody in the Western world has to be concerned about type 2 diabetes as they get older. It's just part of the typical Western lifestyle at this point. But I was bummed out to see those findings suggesting that POTS patients may have some extra reason to watch it. Now, I don't want to scare people about type 2 diabetes. It was a really small study and hasn't gotten much attention, but it did jump out at me mainly because if we know that we have a predisposition to uncontrolled blood sugar, then there's a whole lot we can do about it. And the sooner we start, the better. So this should really be an empowering message. Okay. So let's make sure we kind of unpack their statement there. So they said POTS patients have impaired glucose tolerance, which dramatically increases their risk to develop type 2 diabetes. What is glucose tolerance anyway? Well, glucose is just a word for blood sugar, which is the primary fuel for all our cells. And tolerance just refers to whether the body properly manages an influx of it. And ideally, after a meal, as we digest carbohydrates, they get broken down into glucose in the bloodstream and our blood sugar rises. That makes our pancreas release a hormone called insulin, which acts like a key to unlock our cells so that the cells can take in the glucose and use it or store it for later use. All right, so under normal conditions, we wanna get this glucose out of the bloodstream and so insulin is released and it gets it out of the bloodstream into the cells and then that lowers blood sugar levels. Yes, that's how it's supposed to work. And in glucose intolerance, our cells don't respond to the insulin as well. It's like the insulin is trying to unlock the cell, but the lock is gummed up and it won't open. So the cell isn't really responding or taking in the glucose. So I assume the blood sugar stays in the blood. Yes. So then the pancreas compensates by releasing more insulin. And at first, that might be enough to get the sugar into the cell. But if this phenomenon keeps escalating, it's called insulin resistance. And eventually, all that insulin might be trying to unlock the cells and not succeeding. So more of that sugar just keeps floating around in the bloodstream. And if that happens chronically, we have what's called the glucose intolerance. And if that becomes too severe and too chronic and the blood sugar is always high, it can eventually get defined as prediabetes, or if it gets worse yet, it can eventually escalate to full-blown type 2 diabetes. Uh -huh. Okay. So this insulin, it escorts glucose from the blood into the cells. And in type 2 diabetes, it means that the cells are insulin resistant or they stop responding to the insulin. So a lot of people have this. What does this have to do with POTS? First of all, yeah, you just said it. This has to do with just about everybody in the Western world as we age, especially if we eat a standard American diet and chronically overeat like is pretty normal in the Western world. Now, POTS patients often don't or cannot overeat, even if they wanted to, but we have one more study from Vanderbilt that is small and probably needs confirming, 
but it suggests that POTS patients might want to keep an eye on their blood sugar, even if they are not gaining weight. Okay, why is that? Well, Dr. Shabao and her colleagues did a poster presentation in 2019. If anybody wants to look it up, there's an abstract published in the 11th Congress of the International Society for Autonomic Neuroscience. They took 14 POTS patients and 14 healthy control subjects matched for age and body mass index and gave them each an oral glucose tolerance test. So everybody consumed 75 grams of carbohydrate. And then for two hours, the researchers frequently measured their blood sugar, their insulin, and a few other things. And at the two-hour mark, POTS patients had similar blood sugar to the healthy controls, but their insulin levels were quite a bit higher, like twice as high. So the researchers concluded that they had insulinemia or high insulin. All right. So I guess that would suggest that their cells were more insulin resistant. And we've already talked about how that can be a risk factor for eventually over time heading towards having a harder time controlling blood sugar. So why would that be a problem? Let's say you had chronically high blood sugar. What's the big deal? The chronic is the key word there, like typically years or decades, right? But if it's chronic over a long period of time, then high blood sugar can be hard on blood vessels. It can make circulation worse, especially in the smallest capillaries. So it ends up affecting whatever organs don't get good circulation. Often it's the eyes or the kidneys or the extremities. Chronically high blood sugar over a really long period of time can also contribute to small fiber neuropathy. And around 50% of POTS patients already have small fiber neuropathy. So many of us know from experience that we don't want to make that any worse. And the thinking is that if high blood sugar is not controlled over a lifetime, it could eventually contribute to cognitive decline in older age. It's kind of an issue of aging, not as well. All right. So if we return to that study, the one where we did the cartoon here for a second. So to remind everybody, they said, despite normal BMI, POTS patients have impaired glucose tolerance, which dramatically increases their risk to develop type 2 diabetes. Why do they say despite normal body mass index? Because glucose intolerance is usually thought of a problem associated with chronically eating more calories than you can use and therefore being overweight. In fact, 90% of people with type 2 diabetes are overweight. So lean people are typically not the demographic that gets worried about. Aha. Uh -huh. So I am going to ask the central question to a lot of our conversation, which is, why POTSies? Right. I don't definitively know the answer, and the two articles written about this have been pretty brief. I did email the lead author and ask if she would be willing to come discuss this on a podcast, so we'll see if we hear back. But there are several theoretical reasons that I can think of based on the literature from the non-POTS world of blood sugar. Actually, there's quite a few. One big reason might be something that keeps coming up again and again in POTS. It's that overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, so I am always confusing sympathetic and parasympathetic, but I think that's the fight or flight one, right? Yes, yep. That fight or flight reaction when it's chronically on is associated with higher levels of epinephrine or adrenaline. And we know that can raise blood sugar and contribute to insulin resistance. 
So that's one reason why stress is known to make it harder to reduce blood sugar and to lose weight. Okay, so overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, meaning that when our bodies think that there's an emergency that might need us to fight or flee for survival, it goes ahead and puts a whole bunch of extra glucose into the bloodstream or keeps it there for somehow to help fuel us in case we're getting chased by, you know, that tiger or something. Yes. Yep, exactly. But there are actually also some other reasons that some lean POTS patients could also have glucose intolerance. For example, remember how Dr. Kathy Peterson and our sleep surveys from a couple years ago showed that over 98% of POTS patients reported poor sleep? I do remember that, yes. Yeah, so studies of the normal population show that just a few nights of terrible sleep can cause glucose intolerance in otherwise young, healthy men, right? So they find that you can give a strapping, young, healthy guy basically pre-diabetes within a few nights of terrible sleep, right? We also know that shift work can worsen glucose tolerance. And you mean graveyard shifts, working at night, sleeping during the day, right? Yes. Yep. It upsets circadian rhythms and that affects hormones, metabolism, and some things like that. You know, speaking of nighttime, we also know that eating late can contribute to glucose intolerance compared to eating the same foods early in the day. And since you are always watching me and what I eat, I bet you can guess where I'm going with this. Well, you feel different at different times of the day, like I think probably most POTS people do. So I think it's common for POTS patients to feel worse in the morning and better at night. So nighttime might be the only time when you're feeling good enough to go ahead and eat. Exactly, right. I can even think of one more reason POTS patients could potentially have a tougher time with glucose tolerance, and that is low blood volume. Meaning, if a POTS patient has the normal amount of glucose in an abnormally low amount of blood, that's going to resemble higher sugar concentration in the blood, right? We already know that dehydration contributes to high blood sugar for this reason in the non-POTS population. Uh-huh. So it sounds like POTS patients definitely could have some extra challenges around glucose tolerance, but I think you said that nowadays just about everybody is at some risk. So maybe we take a quick detour and talk about other folks for a second. How common is glucose intolerance? Super common. If this research turns out to be replicated and true and it's an issue, then we are not alone. In fact, maybe it's comforting to know that for once we're totally normal, right? It's so common that according to the CDC, 37% of U.S. adults have prediabetes and it has probably gone up during the pandemic. According to the CDC, 51% of U.S. adults over the age of 65 have prediabetes. They predict that one in three Americans will have actual diabetes by mid-century, and rates are rising exponentially around the entire world just because of the diet and lifestyle that we live. So I think we're all better off for knowing about glucose intolerance, and I'm grateful to the POTS researchers for bringing it to our attention because everybody should know about it, and there's so much that can be done about it with diet, lifestyle, medications if needed. But that main thing is to just watch the carbohydrates in your diet. Uh-huh. Okay. So that reminds me, we are in the part of our talk of lowering carbs, so eating fewer carbs. So I assume that that is a key strategy for controlling blood sugar and preventing glucose intolerance. Yeah? 
Yep, along with the smaller, more frequent meals that we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about sports drinks because I know a lot of people kind of rely on sports drinks. So they definitely have sugar, but they also help hydration and can boost blood volume. Yeah, that's definitely true. If I needed sports drinks to fend off POTS symptoms, then I would go ahead and drink those sports drinks and I would look for other sources of carbohydrates to replace first. Can you just get a sports drink with NutraSweet or Splenda? Actually, NutraSweet or Splenda are probably the worst choices of all of the sugar substitutes out there because not only are they found to affect mood in many people, but they actually disturb gut microbes in ways that are known to worsen glucose intolerance. Huh, that's counterintuitive. I think we'll have a future episode on gut microbes because I think that's a really big topic. But what about some of these uh, new wave kind of sweeteners like stevia and monk fruit? What about those? Yeah, another one's erythritol. And these newer ones are thought to be better. And I'm not aware of anything bad that is known about them when they're used in small quantities. However, I am always cautious because the dark side of NutraSweet took decades to get discovered after we had been assured during those decades that you know NutraSweet was so great and so safe. So I'm a little cynical at this point, but I do not know of anything bad about those more natural sweeteners at this point. Yeah, I've definitely heard some rants come out of your mouth about the whole NutraSweet debacle. <laughs> So reducing intake of processed sugar is hardly a novel concept. We've heard about this from various sources, but you've always said that knowing how to reduce processed sugar intake is a lot easier than actually doing it. So do you have any tricks for making it easier? First of all, there is some research suggesting that sugar cravings don't come from us. They come from gut microbes that are manipulating us to want sugar because it helps them thrive. Okay, so we're really now going to have to have that episode on gut microbes. So we could think of sugar cravings as a sign that we are, what, starving our bad gut bacteria or something? Possibly. Yeah, there are some hypotheses out there suggesting that sugar-loving gut microbes can influence our mood and our cravings and even the reward centers of our brain to try to get us to keep eating sugar. So it's not our fault after all. It's actually the bacteria. That actually feels kind of good. What else? We can also use food temperature to get more sweet flavor for less processed sugar. Do you remember how this one works? I think so. So given some constant amount of sugar, that food tastes a lot sweeter, if I recall, when warm than when cold. So for example, hot cocoa needs less sugar than chocolate ice cream to taste just as sweet. Yep, exactly. And that goes for any food. If you heat your pie up a little bit when you eat it, then it needs less sugar to taste as sweet. Another strategy to watch out for is taste bud ping pong. Do you remember that one? Well, this I think is the sort of eating a salty thing and then eating a sweet thing and the salty thing makes you crave the sweet thing and the sweet thing makes you crave the salty thing and you just sort of ping pong back and forth all the live long day. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. It can really make your cravings go nuts all day. And I've thought about how this is theoretically a risk for POTS patients on a high salt diet. So if people are noticing that they have big sweet cravings as a reaction to all their salty foods, they could try using more salt pills and less salty food so that their taste buds don't even experience as much salt. 
Okay. Well, this one sounds kind of obvious, but what about just not keeping sweets around? So you always mention this famous, I think it's a candy dish or something, some study that was done some decades ago. What did that find? The famous candy dish studies was a series of studies where they put dishes full of candy on people's desks at work, and then they manipulated a few factors and watched what effect it had on the candy consumption. So they found that people ate a lot more candy when the dish was within reach, when it was in sight, when the jar was transparent so that they could actually see all the candy. And I think they ate something like 10 to 30% less candy just from making the jar a few feet further out of reach when something was blocking the view of the candy, like even just a file folder. And then again, just when the candy jar was made opaque so that you couldn't see through it and see the candy. Ah, So this almost sort of sounds like the power of convenience and sort of presence. So what else? Well, we know variety matters. Whenever you have more variety of something, it tends to make you more excited to eat more of it. So for example, if you keep only one flavor of ice cream on hand, you are theoretically less likely to overeat ice cream than if you have three flavors on hand. Uh Uh-huh. Now, I have heard you talk a lot about taste buds and changing your taste buds and trying to change them in the interest of kicking a sugar habit. Can you say a few things about that? Sure, yeah. So taste buds are sort of like hair in that individual taste buds only live a few weeks. So old ones are always dying off and new ones are growing in. And those new virgin taste buds are very sensitive. They think a carrot is sweet. They think an almond is a sweet, creamy explosion in your mouth. They think that ice cream is painfully sweet. But as they get exposed to strong or unnatural flavors, they get desensitized. So, for example, once they've been exposed to mouthwash or super strong toothpaste or even just overly processed foods, now instead of having that carrot taste sweet, the carrot tastes like almost nothing. And that ice cream, instead of tasting painfully oversweet, now tastes just right. Uh, So if you were to reduce your sugar intake, probably everything's going to taste bland for a couple of weeks. And then before long, your new taste buds will come in and healthy and unprocessed foods will all of a sudden taste pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And so everything gets easier if you can just hold out for those couple weeks for those new taste buds to grow in. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. I've really noticed that when I pamper my taste buds, then healthy foods taste a whole lot better. I mean, I've definitely bought into that. Are there other tips that you have for kicking a sugar habit? Yeah. Instead of focusing on resisting sweets, think about what you will eat instead, because it's shown that willpower is stronger when you focus on what you will do instead of on what you will refrain from doing. Uh Uh-huh. I have been focusing all of my willpower on attempting to stay comfortable laying on my stomach (laughs) for this entire (laughs) podcast. What do you think? Are we about done? Yes. Thank you for hosting. Okay. Well, thank you, Jill, for being our guest today. Hey, listeners out there, remember this is not medical or dietary advice. Consult your medical team about what's right for you. And please consider subscribing because it helps us get found by people just like you. But thank you for listening. Remember, you are not alone. And please join us again very soon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts 
or on our website, www.standinguptopots.org slash podcast. And I would add, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to suggest, send them in. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots.